0: The man by the name of Lloyd Saxton in his book The Individual, Marriage and the Family tells us that modern dating differs from previous courtship practices in the following ways. Number 1, the introduction of the man to the woman by a member of the family is no longer considered necessary. Number 2, there is no chaperone. Number 3, there is no commitment on the part of the male or female to continue the relationship beyond the date itself. Number four, the date is planned by the adolescents themselves and not by their elders. And number five, physical intimacies, such as hand-holding. Did you ever think of hand-holding as being a physical intimacy? Well, that's where it starts, isn't it? Hand-holding, petting, kissing, and sexuality are expected rather than Forbidden. Well, it warms my heart to believe that practically everybody in this room understands the foolishness of going out for dates without your parents knowing anything about the person that you're going out with. It's a good idea to have some sort of a chaperone. Certainly, there needs to be a commitment on the part of the male or female to continue the relationship beyond the date itself. And it's, so, it's such a calming and quieting principle to realize that your godly parents are there praying for you, trusting that God is going to enable you to, say, to stay pure. And my greatest urge to you is listen to your parents. They've been through it. They know a whole lot more than you do. And I can imagine that some of you are sitting there thinking, you know, this old lady, and she really is an old lady, and she's really out of it. And she doesn't know all the stuff that goes on. Well, thank God I don't know all the stuff that goes on. (laughs) But I have a pretty good idea because I get an awful lot of tragic letters. I get piles and piles of letters from young people who have made an excruciating mess out of their love life. And I can just remember... That day when Jim Elliott asked me to go for a walk, and we hadn't gone more than about two blocks, when he turned around, he said, look, we're not going back to the dorm now. Let's just go out to the lagoon, which was a sort of a park, and let's just sit down and talk about some things. Well, it was very obvious over the last three or four months before my graduation that Jim seemed to have some sort of an interest in me And so I was excited. I was just thrilled, in fact, when he said, let's go and talk about it. So we went and sat on the grass on a beautiful May morning. We were facing each other more than arm's length apart, sitting there cross-legged, facing each other. And Jim said, I love you. But he said, I have no word from the Lord that I have any right to you until and unless God gives me the green light and he said it doesn't look to me as though there's going to be a green light anytime very soon he had still another year of college to go I was graduating within a couple of weeks and so we had to wait little did we know then that it was going to be five and a half years before God would bring us together and many of you know the story Uh, Jim Jim and I were married for just 27 months when he was killed but God knows exactly what he's doing, and God loves you with an everlasting love. And he wants to enable you to trust him, to do what God wants you to do, to keep your hands off. And that's where it starts. You know, Of course, young people are going to say to me, and many of them have, oh, don't tell me all that this old lady's going to say that it's a sin to hold hands No, I'm not going to say that. I don't think it's a sin to hold hands. But I have a very interesting question to ask you. Why do you want to? Why do you want to? Well, because it feels good. Let's be honest. Just a little handhold. Now, if you happen to be playing a game and everybody's holding hands in a circle or something like that, that's not what I'm talking about. But say you're in the back seat of a car. There's a couple in front of you and a guy behind you. And just sort of little by little, you know, his uh, fingers are going over toward your arm or whatever. All you have to do is just move away a little bit. I did that a thousand years ago. (laughs) And it works. It doesn't take a man very long. It doesn't take a young man very long to figure out what kind of a girl he's sitting beside. And almost all of them are saying anything you like. But I'm pretty convinced that I'm looking at a group of people this morning who want to do it right and who want to glorify the Lord. And you want to go by the things that your parents have been speaking to you about. Now, all of that is sort of the beginning. Believe it or not, once upon a time, I was a teenager. It's kind of hard to imagine that, isn't it? But I was once once upon a time, and it's a wonderful time of life. And some of us ancient souls can actually remember how wonderful that time was. But you're no longer a child. That ended when you said goodbye to 12. Now, there may be some 12-year-olds and maybe some younger ones here, but let's say anybody over 12 you know that you're no longer a child. Remember that Jesus was accepted as a child at the age of 12. And from that on, from that time on, Jesus had burdens to bear. You remember that his parents found him sitting in the temple, confounding the elders with his wisdom. Now, of course, we may say, well, but of course I'm not Jesus. But there is a watershed there. Jesus was a child until he was 12. And from the time he was 12, for the rest of his life here on Earth, he was considered a man. And I think it behooves young parents to give serious attention to that fact. Did you know that the word teenager was coined by President Roosevelt? Nobody had ever heard of a teenager before that. And of course, I was a teenager way, way back, long before you were. And my parents took took it for granted that we were to be treated like adults. And they expected a great deal of us. But the day came back in the early 60s and the 70s when everything seemed to fall apart. Everybody just rolled their eyes and just said, what can you do? You know, they're just kids. My parents didn't call us kids either. Think about that. Think of taking responsibility. There was no such thing as a teenager when I was growing up. Now, how many young parents realize that what they now have on their hands is an adult, and it's high time to expect them to behave as an adult? It is high time to expect them to behave as an adult. Everyone was asking Jesus questions there in the temple, and they were amazed, the Bible says, at his answers. When his parents finally caught up with him, Mary said, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, said Jesus? Didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? That's from Luke for any of you who might be taking notes, it was a watershed in his life. And he recognized the fact that he had a responsibility to speak even to these elders. It was time for him to become a man. And many of you know, I presume, that the Jewish people have something called a bar mitzvah. And that is the watershed between the child and the boy. And a bar mitzvah is a very solemn ceremony for a boy between the ages of 12 and 13. One or the other of those, I've forgotten which it is. So just think about the whole matter of your responsibility as an adult. Try to think about it. Look yourself in the mirror and say, she's an adult. It may sober you a little bit. Now I have a list of seven questions that I'm going to ask you. So you who have notes, right, notebooks, I hope you'll get some of this down. The first question is what are you aiming for? First John 2:17 says the world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear. But the one who is following the will of God is part of the permanent and cannot die. That's 1 John 2.17. You may have various differences in whatever version you happen to be using. But the great question is, what are you aiming for? And I wonder how seriously and soberly you have gotten down on your knees and asked the Lord to show you what he wants you to aim at. And again, I think of Jim Elliott and how early he was aware of his responsibility as a child. I have his journals. His journals have been published. And they are very remarkable and seemingly almost uh, unimaginably uh, adult. But he knew that he had a responsibility before God. And so have we, whatever our age may be. The world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear, but the one who is following the will of God is part of the permanent. Now I'd like you to ask yourself, what am I aiming for? How would you articulate that and put it down on a piece of paper? I would hope that you will go home and ask those questions of your parents or tell them the answers. That's this first question, what are you aiming for? Are you able to say, I'm aiming to be a godly woman. Lord, please help me. Ask your parents to help you. Go to them with open arms and open hands and ask them to help you to know what to do. And I can remember my mother very clearly saying, keep your hands off. And of course, my mother was born a 1,000 years ago, and actually, she was born in 1899. And she was a very beautiful girl. And she happened to be one of the very few owners of a automobile in Philadelphia. She was one of the very first woman drivers. And her father had given her this very fancy car. We have a wonderful picture of it in the book called The Shaping of a Christian Family. So any of you that have bought that book, which Lars has over there, can see a picture of my mother and her cousin i think it is in this big old car and my mother said that she was just swarming with boys around all the time because the boys didn't have cars with very few people that had cars at all and so any time my mother went anywhere in philadelphia that was a sensation it, all the horses would stop and the people would stop and so anyway she had many opportunities but she always kept them at arm's length That's what she told me. She said, I always kept them at arm's arm's length. And you know what? That makes them all the more interesting and interested. So what are you aiming for? Number two, who is your master? Yourself? Your parents? Your school teachers? Your friends? Or is it Jesus Christ himself? Are you old enough, are you sensible enough, to ponder that question? At Wheaton College, we always received a yearbook when we became seniors. And it was very exciting to get autographs in the people that we knew best. and. I got in a long line of girls who were all waiting for Jim Elliott's autograph. I don't remember how many girls there were in front of me, but probably at least 15 or so. And so I was in a cold sweat hoping that I would be able to get Jim Elliott's autograph in my book. And after he had signed all these other books, and I had seen the way his hand moved, he had a very flourishing signature. But when, it, when I presented my book to him, I had the feeling that he had put something different in my book. And he just handed the book back to me and slammed the, slammed the cover and took the, girls, the girl in the next line. And I ran immediately to my room to see what he'd written in my yearbook. This is what he wrote. 2 Timothy 2.4 A soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. And I looked at that verse, I'd never seen it before, 2 Timothy 2.4, and it's in different versions, of course. But I thought, Jim Elliott is giving me a very loud, clear instruction here. A soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. He must be holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, at his commanding officer's disposal. And who is his commanding officer but the Lord Jesus. And so I knew that Jim was not playing games. He had written a different message for me. Who is your master? It was very clear to me that Jim Elliot knew who his master was, and he was personally responsible to be obedient and under the authority of that master. So put down 2 Timothy 2.4 and ponder who is your master. Number three, whose are you? And let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. I'll start a little bit before that. 1 Corinthians 6.12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. And that is a message that needs to be gotten across clearly and positively. Whenever you have any kind of dealings with the young men, boys in your school, in your church, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. And I can remember my mother just saying, always keep them at arm's length. And that's a very good good rule. Why not? Do you not know, this is verse 15, oh, sorry, I skipped, I skipped some here, God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never, says Paul. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Now, as far as I can recall, I I never had a date until I was 12 years old. And the only reason that I was permitted to have a date then was because we belonged to the same group in our church. And there was a boy who was also in my class in a public school. And his name was Ned. And Ned had asked me if he could walk me to walk me to the church for that little party that they were going to have. And, of course, when Ned came and rang the doorbell of our house, my father went to the door. And, of course, I'm sure Ned must have been shaking from head to toe, but he was strong enough to not run away. He came in. My father ushered him into the living room. He sat down. My mother came in. Then then I came in. And my father said to Ned, now you know exactly where you're taking my daughter, you know how long you're gonna be there. If anything crazy starts going, you will bring my daughter home. Do you understand that? And Ned said, yes, he certainly did. So that was terribly exciting for me. I mean, this was a date, and I don't think I ever had another date till I was about 16, but it was only because we were in a very tiny little church and they were hoping that there would be some young people that would come to the party. So, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? That's awesome, isn't it? when you stop to think that we only have one body. Mine is tall, white, Anglo-Saxon, and aged. It's the only body that I have. It's the only body I will ever have in this life. And what is it we're supposed to do with it? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And there was never any question in our home about how dating was supposed to work and my brothers all four of my brothers took my parents advice about dating they kept their hands off we girls there were just two of us and it happened that when I was 14 I went to a Christian boarding school in Florida and we had extremely strict rules there they had dating And it was lots of fun, and we were very excited about it, but it was all done very carefully under the scrutiny of the teachers and of the headmistress of that school. They would pick out the boy who was going to pick the girl, and we would walk very properly to a certain place where we would have good fun and games and all that sort of thing. But I went through my whole so-called teenage, which we'd never heard of in those days, without any disasters. And I can certainly say that there were none after that either. Because, of course, at the age of 21, as I was graduating from Wheaton, I was hoping and praying that somehow, somewhere, God would bring Jim, Elliot, and me together. But it was five and a half years before God did that. Whose are you? That was number three, 1 Corinthians 6. And then verse 4 What do you expect from the world? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, who wants to be persecuted? We don't want to be, do we? We want to live a godly life, but if we couldn't just do a few little things on the side that God wouldn't mind too much, wouldn't that be okay? No, it's not okay. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, not it's not very likely that anyone here in this room is going to be physically persecuted, as many, many Christians are being persecuted. Physically persecuted today in horrible ways all over the world But there are ways in which just if somebody looks at you wrong And you all of a sudden just want to shrink into your little shell and think oh what in the world did that mean? You know what did he mean by that or how come she got him? And all this sort of thing that goes through your head, and you wouldn't even dare to mention it to anybody else but It hurts but the question I'm asking is, what do you expect from the world? You can't expect a lot of foolishness. I was talking with a black lady, a dear Christian lady, who spends a lot of time in Hartford, Connecticut, trying to help young black girls from ages 10 up to 14 and 15 to remain pure. Well, they're up against a tremendous battle, Because nobody in those days, in those categories, ever wants to remain pure. Because what they want to do is to get pregnant. And this lady who works with them, she said to me, you know, they're, they're not wanting to get pregnant because they want the baby. I said, what is it they want? They want to flatter their boyfriends. They want their boyfriends to know that they're virile. These boyfriends, of course are 10, 11, 12, capable of producing children. And so she said, I'm spending my whole life trying to get these girls to keep them off, keep them at arm's length, say no, just say no. And it's a very losing battle. What do you expect from the world? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 3.14-17 Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, there's something that you could spend quite a bit of time in the next week pondering. Just those verses from 1 Peter 3, 14 to 17. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And some of you girls undoubtedly have boyfriends. Have you ever thought in your own quiet time about an answer that you might be able to give to him if he should ask you to give you a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for good than for doing evil. These are hard words, aren't they? Many of them words that you probably have not really thought through. But these four questions that I have given you, it's not the end. Number five, what kind of life do you desire? We could spend a whole lot of time for the rest of the morning hearing what kind of a life you desire. Do you want to be a missionary? Some of you would say, oh, the last thing in the world I want to do is be a missionary. Okay, there are a whole lot of other options, aren't there? But what kind of life do you desire? Do you not desire the kind of life that pleases the Lord Jesus? I'm sure that you do. I feel very sure that most of you here want to please the Lord. You want to preserve that priceless gift called virginity, which can never be given away a second time. Once you've given away your virginity, you've given away your virginity. You're not going to get another one. So what kind of a life do you desire? Titus 2, 11 to 14 says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Just say what? A little bit louder, please. Just say no. Hands off. Titus says it teaches us, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, which means you're going to have to stop and think, what is ungodliness? Where do I draw the line on godliness and ungodliness? Tell that young man who's very eager to get his hands on you, tell him that you don't belong to him, that you belong to Jesus Christ. That will give him pause. That will give him some things to think about. And, of course, he may walk away just rolling his eyes and thinking, this girl over here, you know, she's really nuts. And so she goes, he goes and talks about six, six of his closest friends, and they all agreed, yeah, she's nuts, you can forget about her. But what about this one, you know? There's some kind of a look in her eye that I think I kind of like. Am I ringing any bells out there? What kind of a life do you desire? Say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify himself a people, to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good, I feel quite strongly that this is exactly a description of most of the people that we have in this room today. I really do believe that this is the kind of life that you desire. You are willing to wait for that blessed hope. You want to be self-controlled, upright, and godly. But you want to save that one and only body that you have for the one that God wants to give you. Well, but Mrs. Elliott, what if he never gives me a husband? And, of course, I get lots of letters from single women, many, many letters from single women, telling me about all the stories, you know, they had this relationship and that relationship. And I want to say to them, to all of you girls, what do you mean by a relationship? We are in a relationship. There was never such a word in my vocabulary. There was no relationship until a man by the name of Jim Elliot said, will you marry me? At that point, there is either no relationship at all or there is a very clearly defined relationship if I say yes. And Jim Elliott had the good sense to go to my father first and say, can I ask my, your hand for my wife? Think about these things. Now, what kind of a battle is this going to involve? This is number six. Second Corinthians ten three to 5 says, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And if you find yourself in a compromising position and all of a sudden you realize that something has set itself up against the knowledge of God, take it captive, get out of there, pull away, take captive every thought to make it obedience to Christ. And it just may be that this church will get the reputation of having a whole bunch of really weird girls. Are you afraid of that? You know, the weirder you are and the more distant you are, the more interesting you are likely to be. And that's what my mother told me. She just kept them at arm's length. And she had them swarming around, not only because she was beautiful, but also because she had the car. And she kept them all at bay. And one day, my father was invited to the home of a very wealthy old lady who made a practice of inviting young people to her home just for the specific purpose of getting to know each other. And so my father, who was a very shy man and had been turned down by one or two girls, and he just gave up on that and discovered that, decided he'd probably never be able to be married. But as he was sitting at the dinner table in that lady's home, he looked straight across the table and here was an absolutely beautiful girl and he said to himself, that is the girl I'd like to marry. Didn't even know her name yet. But they had a lovely evening. There were maybe six couples there. And a few months later, the same lady invited him and a group of people to her summer cottage off the coast of Maine. And my father was among them, and he was one of the early birds. So when the boat was coming into the island, his hostess told him that the boat was arriving and did he want to come with her down to the, to the uh, pier. And so he went with her, and the first person that came down the gangplank from that boat was this same beautiful girl that he had seen in this lady's home. And at that point, he said to himself, I am going to marry that woman. And that was on Friday. And, Friday, and Saturday, he asked my mother if she would go for a walk with him. And she said, yes, fine. And so she collected everybody, and they all went for a walk. Well, then, that Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening, he asked my mother again, uh, may I take you to church tonight? And she said, well, well, why? And he said, well, I think there's a church service tonight. Could I take you to church and so she finally, she said, oh, yes. She thought, what is it with this guy in here? So she did the same thing. She got everybody to go to church. By S- Sunday, of course, he was desperate because he had to leave on Monday because he was a counselor in a boy's camp, not too far away from where they were. And so on Sunday afternoon, he said, may I take you to church this evening alone? And finally, she I guess, hunched her shoulders and rolled her eyes and thought, I don't know what the problem is with this guy, but she didn't seem to have enough sense to know what the problem was. Anyway, she said yes, and on the way home, he said, will you marry me? Now, they had not had one lengthy conversation at all, just the usual chit-chat, but my father had made up his mind back at that, at that lady's dinner table. That's the kind of woman I want to marry. Well, my mother had many choices, And my father happened to have only one eye, and so he had taken it for granted no woman was ever going to marry him because he had lost one eye. But my mother couldn't say yes or no. She didn't say no, but she said about six weeks later she had prayed over it, and she said yes. It was that simple. So there were a whole bunch of guys who probably just died a thousand deaths because she was no longer available. Just let it be known when you're not longer available. Ephesians six ten to 12, this is also under number 6. What kind of a battle will this involve? Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What is your strength? This is now number seven. Isaiah 50, verse seven, is one of the watchwords of my life. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Do you believe that the Lord God will help you? Of course he will. But he wants you where you can come to him. He wants you to hear what he has to say. And he wants you to tell him what you want and what you hope for. And he's there because he loves you. What is your strength? The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. In Deuteronomy 31.8, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And this little book, Dating, Mating, or Waiting, is a wonderful little book by a man named Clay Sterritt. I only have one copy of this, but if you want to get more Here's the address, CFC CFC Literature, CFC Literature, Post Office Box 245, Post Office Box 245, Staunton, S-T-A-U-N-T-O-N, Virginia. Staunton, Virginia, 24402-0245. Now, there's another matter that I'm going to be talking about later on today, and that is the question of forgiveness. I would be very naive if I thought I was looking at a group of girls among whom none had ever given away their virginity some of you have. You know what a sorrow that is. You know that you wish you hadn't done it. But what's the answer for you? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And you can come to the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I blew it. I messed up. Maybe some of you mothers are feeling very convicted because you did not give your daughters adequate teaching on this subject god knows and he's never going to put away someone who comes to me comes to him in honest faith and says lord cleanse me with the blood of jesus there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from emmanuel's veins And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And so may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. May the Lord give you grace to trust him, to wait for his timing, to seek your parents' approval and involvement when dating. And Clay Sterrett says this In generations past, parents were more involved in the interpersonal relationships of their sons and daughters. Forthright communication is good, especially with the father. Years ago, an interested young man would be invited for dinner, join in family outings, and attend church together, etc. During these times, the father would personally get to know the young man and feel free to question him and be in a better position to encourage or discourage the relationship. So maybe some of your fathers are very timid, and they don't really know exactly what to do. I think these principles here will be very helpful. Hopefully, says Mr. Sterrett, this same openness can occur with the young man's family as well. This may seem a little old-fashioned today, but it would generally be a healthy safeguard for young people. And you're blessed in having a wonderful church with a whole lot of godly people around to help you. I'm so glad that you were able to come today. I, I'm assuming there are many who perhaps come from, another, from other churches. But the principles are here. I trust that your parents are aware of your desire to remain pure And this man says, I know a family in which the daughter, a senior in high school, had a young man interested in her. Her Christian parents did not allow their daughter to date one-on-one, but encouraged the young man to visit their home and permitted some church group activities together. The young man's parents, also Christians, did the same. The two sets of parents talked together and agreed in their approach. As a result, the relationship has been healthy the couple escaping a lot of the hassles and the heartaches that most teenage couples experience. I realize, he says, that not all Christian teens have godly parents who are committed to high standards for dating and relationships. In such cases, possibly church elders or a godly counselor could give some guidelines and accountability if the couple is serious about a Christ-centered relationship. What kind of life do you desire? What are you aiming for? Who is your master? Whose are you? What do you expect? What kind of a battle will this involve? What is your strength? Our strength is in the Lord. Don't forget that. God bless you.